I open your Bibles to John 15. I want to do a message today called Stay Alive. Stay Alive. And the reason why I want to do this message is because I think, you know, beyond what happens in our local churches and in our communities, we are part of sort of an ecclesiological family, a broader church family of those who genuinely profess to believe in Jesus Christ. And if you are paying attention, as you've heard me say in previous messages, this family, the church, if you will, people who profess to believe in Jesus Christ, even if we just examine our own nation, is rapidly declining. I could have shown up today with a number of stats and different disappointing perspectives to highlight that the church, as we know it, as a force in our nation, has not only lost what appears to be its saltiness, but it's also, to some degree, individual churches have lost their vigor. And when you go through, many of us have been Christians for some time, we know what it's like to walk with the Lord and to experience a measure of disappointment particularly when that disappointment is surprising. You know, most of us have sort of a view of our lives that we think is pretty faithful. Most of us have a way we wanted to live. We have a way we want to die. If we, if I were to ask many of us, how do you want to die? Many of us would probably say, in our sleep. Painless, suffer-free, struggle-free. And then an eternity of that. But what often happens in sort of the suffer-free gospel that we can sometimes, not even intentionally mean to, but in the culture we live in, the, the, the pursuit of happiness, the life of liberty, the pursuit of happiness, and just all of this becomes sort of a part of who we are. And we have so much access to to options and technology that, that sometimes what, because my, my cell phone, which is the biggest idol in my life, my, my iPhone, I have so many options. I mean, when I'm suffering right now for me, suffering at times can just be this thing is moving too slow. You know, it's like, man, why is this iPhone? I got to reboot this thing and I'm, I'm disappointed. It's a computer. Some of you are smiling because you do the same. Your Wi-Fi is not working, and so you can't binge watch this weekend. But there's something more pervasive going on underneath all of this stuff. There is a spiritual war happening, and the church is distracted by culture and by its sufferings. And we are gradually, gradually losing our confidence in the faith that we once held on to so dearly. Now, this may not be for those of you in this church, but I I doubt that with this many people listening, there isn't at least one person that resonates with this reality. So this morning, I want to do a sermon called Stay Alive, because there are Jesus' words here in John chapter 15, that he was speaking to his disciples. This was just hours before he was about to be murdered. And he gives them a very serious exhortation about what it means to essentially stay alive and persevere to the end. 
And so I wanted to do that this morning. I hope that this, this is helpful for you all. This is helpful for me, even meditating on it on the way up. I was praying to the Lord that there are aspects of what I felt like is in this that are convicting for myself. But I want to just paint the scene for just a moment. This is the upper room. This is just hours before Jesus is about to be killed. Judas, who was one of the original 12, has left the building. And now Jesus is talking to the 11 men that he has chosen before the foundation of the world to represent his teaching after he dies. These men don't know that Paul will be sort of the inducted 12th man after Jesus' resurrection and ascension. So these men are listening to Jesus as he teaches them. And then he says this in John 15, beginning in verse 1. We'll read to verse 8, and I quote. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word as Albert so eloquently put that this is the truth. This is our guiding. This is our guiding light. This is what defines how we live, what you say in your word. We want to take seriously your word. We want to, as best as we can, by your grace, obey your word. We know that we have certain challenges, and you know those challenges. Some of those are what you give for us to, in effect, represent our crosses that we have to carry. Some of us have gone through circumstantial things that leave us perplexed and that really threaten our confidence in you. You allow, you allow challenges, you allow sufferings that if we're being honest, make it easy for us not to like you, not to trust you, and to slowly and sometimes unknowingly move away from you. So I pray this morning that if anyone is here in that way, whether it's anger at you, resentment, tired of you, tired of struggling, all things considered, I pray that you would give them a word of encouragement, a word of reminder, and where necessary, a word of correction. 
As Albert alluded to, my being here represents nothing apart from your spirit working. So if you, if you, Lord, don't do the work, then what I said will fall on deaf ears, for I lack the power to bring about any change. But you don't. So I submit these words to you for your glory and our good. In your name we pray. Amen. There are many things to highlight in this particular passage, but I will choose just four. There are four things I want to highlight. Again, there's a lot you could say. I'm sure you've heard this passage taught before, but I want to highlight four things in particular. One, the command. The second will be the concern. The third will be the consequence. And the fourth will be the consideration. So command, concern, consequence, and consideration. Let's take a look first at the command, beginning in verse 4. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you. Unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. This imagery that Jesus is, 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 is saying here, we, sometimes when we read the New Testament, let me just say this, when we read the New Testament, for us, we're reading the New Testament. We're reading the letters of particular authors, or we're reading uh, stories of things that Jesus said. But when these things were happening, when these letters were written, it was the New Testament and the New Covenant existed, but they were still processing their old life, particularly those who were of Jewish descent, were still processing sort of all they had learned from the Mosaic Law, which we would call the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and a lot of the uh, uh, the, the rules and, 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 and sacrifices and traditions. They were still processing all of this. So when Jesus was alive, they weren't reading the gospel story like we are. They're processing this. And so Jesus will often use imagery and language that they can relate to that has Old Testament baggage, if you will. Old Testament ramifications. So this idea of Jesus being the true vine comes right out of Ezekiel. Ezekiel 15, 1 through 8. Ironically, this is John 15, 1 through 8. Ezekiel 15, 1 through 8 has this narrative of the vine. And the vine was a symbolic understanding for Israel in the Old Testament. But this, the problem is, though, whenever the vine was mentioned, it was always and often mentioned for something negative. The vine was not bearing fruit. This idea of a vine and bearing fruit comes directly out of the Old Testament in Ezekiel 15, Ezekiel 17, and passages like Psalm 80. So this is not, this is language to us that's, that's different because many of us don't go near vines. Maybe never have. When I was a kid, there was this, um, wooded area and there was this vine that hung from this tree and we would swing across the vine and we would bet and see who would fall and let go and get hurt. And there was water there, but it was a creek. It was like two inches, three inches deep. So if you fell into the vine, it was like falling onto the ground, but you got wet. 
And I remembered I was a kid that was not afraid to do any of this stuff. So and I was also not this big. So I grabbed Devon because I was confident that I wasn't going to fall into Devon, to the, to the little creek. And I grabbed Devon with my left hand, and then I ran back, and I ran and jumped and then grabbed my right hand, and I loved it. And I swung up, and I thought I had it. And I don't know what happened. I don't know what happened. I'm not sure. But somehow, the confidence of that grip and my excitement went immediately within maybe a half a second to fear and the proof that gravity does in fact exist. So as my hand somehow slipped from this, I propelled forward and all I could see was the ground approaching quickly. And the next thing I remembered was being on an island somewhere and I woke up in a hospital room. I was badly hurt. No, I didn't wake up in a hospital room. Actually, I woke up with my friends like laughing in my face like this. And I woke up with my back and my left side wet. That was not a good vine. I hated that vine for the rest of my life. And to this day, when I drive around that neighborhood, I look for that vine. I will cut it down if I see it because of the impact that that vine had on me. It was a bad omen for me, a vine. When Jesus is describing that he's the true vine, it's a good omen, but he's countering the bad omen of the vine in the Old Testament. It didn't bear fruit. And this is a theme throughout the Old Testament. Israel didn't bear fruit. So Jesus comes and he does in their place and all of our places. And so this command that Jesus is giving here is sort of twofold. And one can't happen without the other. So the command is this. Abide in Christ and bear fruit. Abide in Christ and bear fruit. But here's the challenge for us today. We don't talk like this. Well, let me, I'm, I don't, I'm not around you, so let me say this. I don't talk like this. I don't talk like this. I can't remember the last time I used the word abide. If someone, I, I mean, when's the last time you've used the word abide, anyone? Have you used it in the last five years? Okay, one, two, three. All right, so three out of all of us have used the word abide. This is just not how we talk, right? Now, we understand language like bear fruit. We understand it because we're around it and we've heard it talk. But this is not how we communicate. Abide means to stay or remain. Like when someone says, hey, man, you coming with us? Nah, man, I think I'm abide, man, and watch the game. Like who talks like that, right? Are you going to go, I'm going to abide tonight, man. I think I'm going to abide. That's just not how we talk, right? So the language sometimes can be challenging. So let's, let's, let's put it in our context. Here's what Jesus is saying. Remain or stay in me. Remain with me. Stay with me. That's what abide means. This is what Jesus is saying. Remain. Stay in me with me. Now here's what's important. He's asking, he's telling them, and by, by default, us, 
to do this. So this is not a passive statement. This is something that Jesus is saying you must do. Stay in me. Remain. It means continue to believe in me and trust me and obey me despite. Because without that, you can't do anything. You can't. So abide means to stay. And as we know, bear fruit. Now, again, we're more familiar with that language. But apart from being a Christian, I wouldn't know. If you would have told me to bear fruit, I would have thought you meant feeding bears. I wouldn't think bear fruit had anything to do with me. I, I had no context for that language. That's not how I talk. So let's put this in our context. Bear fruit means make progress in your obedience. Bear fruit means make progress in your obedience. And it's progress that can be seen. So when Jesus says no good tree bears bad fruit, the fruit should be visible. And here's why this is important. Have you ever asked someone when someone passed away, like someone's relative, and you just, you're just asking because it, it's, it's a safe question to ask in the context, and you say, were they, were they a believer? And then you hear this response, I'm not sure, I think so. I think so. That statement means the fruit was not obvious. Now, they don't want to be judgmental. So they say, I think, I, I hope so. I'm trusting the Lord that. But what they're saying is, I didn't see enough fruit to confidently say yes. When I die, if my children get asked this question and they say, I hope so, I failed. I hope my children say, oh, man, I know my dad is probably trying to make Jesus laugh right now. I hope they have the confidence to say that. Not that I'm perfect. I have weakness and many of them are obvious, but there's fruit. Make progress in your obedience. Having said that. Let's reread this eight verses with a different language. Just briefly, just to see the command play out. Jesus, I am the true vine, verse one, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not make progress, he takes away. And every branch that does make progress, he prunes that it may make more progress. Verse three, already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Verse four, stay in me and I in you. As a branch cannot make progress in obedience by itself unless it stays in the vine, neither can you unless you stay in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever remains in me and I in him, he it is that will make progress in obedience. This is verse 5. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Verse 6. If anyone does not remain in me, He is thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you stay in me and my words stay in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father was glorified that you make progress in your obedience and so prove to be my disciples. This is what he's saying. 
Stay in me. Stay alive. And make progress in your obedience. That's the command. Here's the concern. Here's the concern. Same verses. We're going to stay there for a second for the concern. In verses 4 and 5, I'm going to read it one more time for context. I'm going to use what he's saying now, but just think, remain, stay, make progress. Abide in me, stay in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit, make progress by itself, unless it stays in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever stays in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So in these verses, the command and the concern are intertwined. Because the branch, and you probably guess this because you're sharp people, the branch is us. So when Jesus is talking to his disciples, the branch is them, but by extension, the branch is all who profess to believe in Jesus Christ. So now we have entered into this narrative as a part of who Jesus is talking to. This isn't a conversation between him and his disciples that we get to observe and say that was a cool scene. This is our command now. And there's a concern in these verses that affects us. So we are the branches that are being commanded to stay in Jesus and make progress in our obedience. And the concern that I think Jesus is saying this is that there are branches that do not make progress in their obedience. And I think it's connected to because there are branches that are trying to make progress apart from the vine. There are professing believers who want to grow, but not necessarily connected to Jesus. So then the question then becomes, how do you know if you are Remaining and staying in Jesus and making progress in him. Or the way we put it today, how do you know you're doing things on your own strength or in the strength of the Lord? Because that's the concern here. This is, this is a very serious thing because I think what Jesus is saying here is why many believers don't bear fruit. Many Christians do not make progress is because we like to do things on our own. And here's a proof of this. Here's proof. I was, I was thinking this today and just really convicted and I'm praying to the Lord. Why is this, why is this so common? I have the privilege of preaching in multiple conferences, other churches. Sometimes it's a privilege. Sometimes it doesn't feel like that. To be honest. Now, when I come here as a privilege, Albert has the bat phone. So if Albert calls me, it's like, all right, let me uh, see what I can do. I'm there because I have a connection to this church. There are people here that I remember who remember me way before this. I'm looking at people right now that we were in, we were in ministry together. I remember me, Fred, and another guy, uh, Mark Mitchell, went, went down to Texas to go do some research. Remember that? Oh, this is 03, right? <laughs> that was my first time going to Austin, Texas. 
And the only thing I remember about that was one conversation me and Fred had and these ribs. That's it. And it's concerning that I remember the ribs, I know. But they were that good. So I go back. There are people in this room that I go back with. But what I see this broadly, and you know, whenever you talk about prayer, you will see many believers kind of do the, oh, man. You say, hey, man, how much does pray for an hour? And that just seems like a task for many believers. It's not a task to binge watch a show, right? It's not a task to be on my phone for hours, scrolling the Facebook wall. But if I call a prayer meeting at the church, four people may show up. If I host a game night at the church, 30 people will show up. And this is common that I've seen across the country. I have a lot of friends who are pastors that are constantly reminding people we need to pray. 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 So here's the question. Why is it difficult to pray? Why is it difficult for us to pray a couple hours a day? Why is it easier on a commute to turn on talk radio or even worship music? Something else to distract us from conversation with God. I think, not in every instance, but underneath many of those, is the reality that we want to make progress without staying in Jesus. Every genuine Christian I know wants to be godly. Everyone. I don't know anyone who's like, I ain't trying trying to honor the Lord. If you're talking about genuine believers... I'm not talking about genuine Christians. There are Christians who don't care, who profess to be believers. I'm talking about genuine believers want to be godly. Many people in this room want to be holy. But if we had the choice to take up a cross and grow gradually or to receive a holy zap, right? We'd take the zap. And that's not how God does it. You ever pray this? You ever pray, God, just help me. Help me just to love this person. There's a person in your life that's difficult, co-worker, spouse, a child, a pastor, a leader, whatever. It's like, help me love this person. And you're praying this and you really believe that. You really want to love them. And then they do something that just piss you off. And now you're like, man, I don't like them even more than before I prayed. And you're sitting there thinking like, man, I'm praying, Lord, help me love this person. And now I hate them even more. What's happening here? Prayer doesn't work. So you know what's happening? What we were really praying was, God, make this person more lovable to me. Instead of make me stay in you and persevere and fight to love this person. Despite the challenges I experienced with them. We wanted to zap. We wanted God to be like, Lord, help me love this person. Zoop. Brother. I pray for you hours in a day. Sister, that dress is incredible on you. You know, we, 
We want this sense of like, I've arrived. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. Stay in me. Stay in me. Take up your cross. There will be suffering. It will be difficult. It will seem like I'm not active in your life. But continue to have faith. Don't doubt. And you'll make progress. And you'll be. Keep praying. Keep fighting. I'm with you. But what we want is. Zoop. It's gone. And when it doesn't go away quickly. We stay bitter. We stay resentful. We gossip and slander. We're angry. And we justify it by it's not easy. I, I, I don't know what Bible translation you use, but I think only in the gospel according to Barnabas or Thomas Jefferson's Bible can you fought, somehow find that Christianity is easy. I don't know which it might be in the Apocrypha or something that you can't maybe not even there. Right. I have never seen like and it will be easy for you. It wasn't easy for Jesus. The Garden of Gethsemane proves that, if nothing else. There is a concern that Jesus is highlighting because it's easy for people not to remain in him. It's easy to not do that because he knows that we're going to experience challenges, suffering. We're going to have sin issues that don't seem like they go away. We're going to have people that we just don't get along with that are even in our own churches or in our own families. And we want things to be easy. Christianity in America, Christianica is a suffer-free Christianity. It's suffer-free and then suffer-free eternity. But the biblical Christianity is, is suffering and then suffer free eternity. Amen. You know, it's funny. When Jesus said, take up your cross, he was alive when he said that. When Jesus told the people to take up your cross and follow me, when he said that, when he was alive, the moment he said that, people didn't have this view of the cross like we do. You would not have walked around and found tattoos of a cross on people's arms and backs and legs and rosary beads and all of that. You wouldn't have found none of that. Two hands praying with a cross down. Those tattoos would be like, whoa, that's a cool tattoo. Yeah, I'm getting a sleeve of the whole thing. You wouldn't have found none of that. In Jesus's day, a cross to them would have been like the electric chair to us. They would have been, when they heard Jesus say, take up your cross, they were like, huh? Take up your what? Did you say crawd? Cross? The thing that, that kills all those people viciously? It was the most violent, public, humiliating way to die in the known world at that time, in the Greco-Roman world. So when Jesus said, take up your cross, they would have balked at that like, no way. Today, you got people who don't even believe in Jesus with the coolest tattoos of them. But back then, no one would have taken up their cross. No one was like, you got to be crazy to do that. And what Jesus was saying is, willfully choose to suffer and follow me and you will be rewarded. And if we're honest, even something as simple as prayer, for many of us, 
is a cross. And prayer is actually the one thing that's the easiest and most often to do. So why is it the least desirable and the least spiritual discipline used among those who believe in Jesus? This may not be an indictment on you. But I can tell you, I've been around and I myself am guilty as charged. Jesus is is bringing a concern in this passage. And that you can do nothing apart from him. You cannot. So in the context, stay alive and make progress in your obedience. If we don't remain, stay in Jesus, we will not make progress in obedience. That's just the way he put it together. And often what scares us is we see people profess to remain and then make some progress. And then we see them do a 180 and walk away from that. And we're like, oh, my gosh. What happened? But if you really scratch underneath the surface, you will see that they may began well. But something happened or didn't happen or it just gets boring or difficult or tough. And then all of a sudden, it's just easier to just walk away. And no one in this room is exempt. None of you are exempt, including myself. I believe this passage This whole passage explains why for Christians in America in particular, why it's difficult to remain in Jesus. Why it's difficult. And this is the concern. This is part of the concern. I want you to look at verse two of this passage. Look at verse two. Here's what Jesus says. This is why I think many believers want to bear fruit, make progress apart from Christ, are waiting one day for a holy zap. So spoiler alert, there's no holy zap in Christianity. <laughs> there's no, there's people in this room that have been walking with the Lord for decades. They ain't been zapped yet. There's no holy zap. When you die and stand up for the Lord, that's when you get the holy zap. Glorified body and all that. I can't wait to be cut up in the Lord. I'm going rock climbing in heaven. Now I'll just take pictures of it. Yeah, it's a nice, I'm climbing that thing. Climbing that thing, no way. I'll swing on a vine in heaven, but now no way. Look at this in verse 2, because I think this is an overlooked reality. And I think this is why many people, including those of us in this room, would prefer to make progress apart from Jesus. Here's what he says in verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch, he being the Father. He's talking about the Father. Jesus is saying, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. I think Jesus is describing why people don't want to make progress. And it's alluding to what I said, but here's the biblical explanation for it. It's what he says in the second half of this this verse. Every branch that does bear fruit, the father prunes. 
Now, I'm from the hood. I'm not from the woods. So I don't got a green thumb. But let me get on my green thumb just for a minute. Just for a minute. You know, pruning. Pruning is the act of going to a plant or a vine and seeing some good fruit surrounded around a bunch of other bad things that will prevent it from being good fruit. So what when someone goes to prune, they are cutting out all of the bad stuff and even trimming down some of the bad stuff that affects the good flower so that it can continue to blossom. The goal of pruning is not to cut the good stuff, but to cut around it and to trim it down. It's almost like giving it a haircut. You know, when you, you just look better when you get your hair cut, right? Everyone does. Some people, I need one, I get it. But you just look better with a haircut, you know? Most people, women come out and they feel like they're ready to be on the front cover of a magazine with a good haircut, right? With a good style. So so it, it's like getting a haircut. It, it cuts around all the stuff to make what's there, the fruit that's there, have an easier way to blossom. The hope is is from the, the vine dresser is that as he, as he cuts this stuff off, he's getting rid of the bad stuff that's around this so that the good fruit that's there, the good flower that's there, has an easier way to grow. And he has to do this continuously or some of the bad stuff will get into the good and then it'll corrupt that and he has to get rid of it. So what he's cutting around is making sure all the bad Bad stuff is taken out so that it bears good fruit and it's there. It's a beautiful thing. And it's the reason why many of us don't like to be in Christ and make progress. Because the, the, the pruning that the Father does, it hurts. It hurts. The pruning that Jesus says happens to those that bear fruit can be a bad thing to us. God may take a relationship out of your life that may be toxic and you don't even see it. You're so used to it that you just deal with it and don't even see it. And so all of a sudden now you you have a relationship or something in your life that God takes away and you think it's the worst thing in the world, but God is removing this relationship so that you can flourish. Or you don't get an opportunity or, or you know, fill in the blanks. You think about your life, but there is pruning happening to each of us when we bear fruit. And every single time that God cuts it, it hurts and we don't like it. Because we don't like any suffering, any pain. I mean, let's just be honest. You ever, you, there's people in this room like, I hate needles. I, I don't struggle with it, so I've never understood the fear of it. It's like it's a needle. It's just, if it's going to help me, go ahead and do it. I'm more excited to see if you can find a vein in my arm right now. That's the game. <laughs> can you find a Last time I went to get a checkup, they were like, uh-huh, we can't find a vein. We so we said, oh, really? This, this, you know, I'm sitting here trying to, you know, get my, my, get my gym game on like that. But they couldn't find a vein. So we had fun just doing that for 45 minutes. It's like, where's the vein? Different doctors came in. Can you find the vein? I was the official, where's Waldo? Where's Kurt's vein? It was, but the needle didn't bother me. But you know what bothers me? Splinters, man. I hate splinters. I got a splinter in my foot and I couldn't get it out. And you might as well shot me in my leg is what it feels like. That splinter is probably this big. But that thing feels like I got hit with a 12 gauge in my leg. 
And people think my walk is cool. Like, wow, you still walk like you're from where you're from? It's like, nah, fam, it's a, it's a splinter. <laughs> I still walk like I'm from the hood because my foot hurts. It's a splinter like that. And I hate it. And it hurts more than it does. It doesn't really hurt as much as it does, but because it hurts a little bit, it hurts a lot because I hate it. And that's exactly what God is doing. God has to pull the splinters out of us. And he does it to those who genuinely believe. Hebrews 12 describes it as this, that God disciplines those he loves as sons. He disciplines those he loves as sons. I'm a dad of three boys. I love them. And anytime I have to discipline them, they never feel like it's good. But I do it because I don't want you to do more, son. If you are a genuine believer and you are making progress, two things are happening. More than two, but these two definitely. It means you are trying to remain in Christ, but also the Father is pruning you. He's pruning you. But sometimes that pruning is going to hurt. And not for a day or two. It may hurt for the rest of your life. And it is because of this that I think many people struggle, believers, with remaining in Christ because they want to grow but not without the suffering. I'll take heaven. I'll take heaven. I'll take that. I'll take being up there, but without much suffering down here. And they're together. Stay alive and make progress in your obedience. And the concern is that we don't want to be pruned. So spoiler alert, pruning, cutting out things, some of those things we hold on to. Some of those are sin issues that God exposes. Now you're embarrassed. Other people are hurt. Different struggles. You know, as a pastor, I sit in front of many people for many different reasons. A wife finds out her husband has been watching pornography and she's devastated. He's humiliated. It's been a habit he struggled with since he was single. And God exposes it. Not because he doesn't love to do. But by exposing it. He's pruning it. He's pruning him. He's pruning him. And if he humbles himself, then he'll make progress. Sometimes the pruning hurts too much and they walk away from the Lord. Question to meditate on is what will you do? Or what are you doing? The father is pruning you. He's pruning you. What are you doing? 
I'm not talking about do you come to church or small group. I mean, when no one's around you, when no one's monitoring your activity, what do you think? Do you pray? Do you read? Do you remain in him when no one else is watching you? That's the concern. The passage continues. There's a consequence here. There's a consequence. In verses 2, 6, and 8, he lists the consequence. I'm going to say this part briefly because I don't know. I, I know I was told I got two hours, but I want to be sensitive. So I'm, I'm, I know humor, so I know that was a joke. So I want to be sensitive to the fact that you all can't stomach me before a few more minutes. So here we go. For the consequences, here are the consequences. In verse 2, every branch of me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. That's one of them. In verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, does not stay in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish. And prove that you are my disciples. I'm skipping through that. So the command is to stay in Christ, stay alive, remain in Christ, and make progress in your obedience. The concern is that no branch can bear fruit by itself. But that that's what we want because the pruning, the what we call sanctification, the process of it, it hurts. It hurts. And there's consequences here, both good and bad. The bad consequences are seen clearly in this reality. In verse 2, it says, every branch that does not bear fruit. He takes away. And then in verse six, he says, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. This is this is analogical language. For basically this people who are not making progress in me, who do not truly believe in me and remain in me. They wither. So, you know, what withering is withering is a slow dying. Slowly die, slowly die from their relationship to the Lord, slowly walk away, slowly do their own thing. And then it says they're thrown into the fire and burned. They're going to hell. They're going to hell. Jesus is saying that everyone who does not abide in him and make progress in obedience it's not going to stand before him in eternity and be told, well done. That good and faithful servant. The consequence for not doing this, for not staying in Jesus, is hell. It's hell. You will spend an eternity, I believe, remembering all of the opportunities that were wasted in this life. And you will burn in hell forever. This is very, very important because one of the pitfalls of Christianica is to make grace so amazing, to make grace so amazing that you can live however you want and still experience it. Spoiler alert. Grace is not that amazing. 
It's not that amazing that you can profess to believe or not believe, live however you want, and be welcomed into the eternal kingdom. Grace is not that amazing. Grace doesn't lower the standards of holiness. It just forgives us for not keeping it. And it reminds us to keep it. It reminds us to go after our bitterness and resentment, our self-righteousness. It reminds us that our gossip is wrong. It reminds us that our slander is wrong. It reminds us that our unwillingness to forgive people who have offended us is sinful. Do you know, I know some Christians, I know some genuine believers who profess to be believers who think that they don't have to forgive other people if they've hurt them significantly enough. They think it's, you can just do that. Like, well, I'm sorry. I'm just, I'm sorry. I'm just not, I'm not forgiving them. Like that was, I'm sorry. And it's like, really? So how do you process in Matthew 6 when Jesus says, if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive you your trespasses? Do you realize forgiving other people for their sins against you is part of the making progress in obedience and staying in Christ? That if you are a professing Christian who is unwilling to forgive anyone who sins against you from your elders on down to your children, that you will not stand before God and make it. You will not. You won't. Matthew 18, 21 through 35, the parable of the unmerciful servant. says, hey man, you've been forgiven for more than what has been done to you. There isn't a sin you've experienced against anyone in this church that you haven't done to the Lord ten times over. And he still forgives you. But you know what? You know what forgiveness is? Pruning. It's pruning. Forgiveness. That crackle is my beard. I'm sorry. I love Duck Dynasty. I wish I could have the beard like those dudes. I wanted to be the Black Spurs and have a beard like that, but mine mine gets nappy and doesn't grow as much. But that's pruning. You know, forgiveness is pruning. You know how hard it is to forgive people? To overlook offenses? It hurts to do that. Because you feel like someone's getting over on you. They hurt you. They've offended you. They've said this. They broke promises. You feel like, I'm not forgiving them. They're just going to keep doing it. But what about when Jesus said to Peter... If someone comes to you and says, I forgive you, you forgive him 70 times 7. He didn't mean 490 times. He just meant that's part of what it means. And I've seen people walk away from the Lord because they don't want to forgive people who have offended them. If we do not stay in Jesus... And make progress. The consequences are eternal fire. And sadly, in the church culture today, that's too offensive for people. That's too offensive. As if Jesus only talked about heaven and Grace and as if he didn't warn significantly 
A warning is just as loving as a blessing. A warning is just as significant. One of the reasons, one of the things I love about, I hate about driving at night is you just, I'm just tired. I just get tired. And I'm grateful for this when I drive on the Beltway home. Sometimes I'll preach at conferences. If it's in driving distance, I'll drive. But I'll preach. I might have done a couple different messages or whatever. Coming home, I'm tired, I'm driving. And there are times when we all just have that long blink. You know, when you're just driving and you just, that blink is a little too long. And this is what you hear next. You do your driving and you just, and then you hear, and you wake up. And there's a groove in the ground that God put in man's heart to make sure that you stay alive and make progress in your driving. And you hear that, and it's loud, and it's intrusive, and you wake up. If that hadn't have been there, you might have woken up in front of him or in a hospital. Those grooves save lives. Those are warnings from the road. You're not on me anymore. (laughs) The road talketh. Those are, you're not on me anymore. Warnings about hell are Jesus saying, stay awake. Because if you're not on me anymore, then the consequences are unimaginable and unrelenting. Lastly, there are good consequences. There are good ones. He says this in verse 7. Let me just read verse 8. I'll go to verse 8 this time. He says, God is glorified and proved to be my disciple. So be by this, my father is glorified. When you make progress, that you bear much fruit, that you make progress in obedience and, and prove to be my disciples. This is the, this is the good consequence that we remain in Christ. We, we pray, we read, we, we confess when we need to, we forgive, we, we are part of our churches. We, we're willing to share the gospel with other people. We're we're in the good fight of faith. We do all the things that we need to do. We we resist the, 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 the distraction of the world. You know, if I said, hey, let's binge prayer. Let's have a binge prayer meeting. That'd be like, ugh. Let's get together and watch all the Star Wars films. Oh. Some people would be like, ugh. We do all those things and we do them. Do you know, honestly, what makes your obedience distinctly Christian? Have you ever run into that? What makes your obedience distinctly Christian? Muslims pray five times a day. Jehovah's Witness evangelize more than us. Have you been home and they knock on your door? You open the door. Hey, hey, we're from. Oh, okay. Can we come in? No, but. 
I'm busy. Are you too busy for Jehovah? Uh, for your Jehovah, sure. <laughs> when was the last time you knocked on the neighbor's door and said, hey, I just want to, do you have a moment? Now, I don't knock on people's doors because I scare everyone when they open the door. Like, I, people, like, have security, like, hey, I don't open the door, man, it's a big black dude out there. Like, what dude, what black dude's going to show up at your door in the daytime and try to do some harm to you? But people are not, I mean, I've had, I've walked up to people that share the gospel and people have been so afraid they've given me their watches. I got Rolexes in my car right now. I, just, I didn't even, I just took it. I was like, hey, I mean, I didn't, I was trying to tell you about Jesus, but he was so afraid. Take it. So I just have, so I got a car. I'm selling them if you want them. They're cheap. But I mean, what makes your obedience distinctly Christian? There are other people. You ever met a non-Christian who's more moral than you? Look, non-Christians love their wives and children. They don't want to commit adultery. They're genuinely nice people. They don't want to steal office supplies. They don't cheat on their taxes. They want their families to grow up and have good life. What makes your obedience distinctly Christian? There's only a few things that make your obedience distinctly Christian. And one of them is praying to Jesus. One of them is reading your Bible and memorizing the word so that you can obey it because you want to honor the Lord. Most of the other morality, non-believers do that. All of us probably know at least one person that would make a good Christian. They're just nice, humble folks. And they've made progress in their personalities, but not by staying in Jesus Christ. That's not good enough. But we prove to be his disciples. We prove to be his disciples by bearing fruit. So here's the consideration. If we stay alive in Christ, if we abide in him and his words abide in us, there's little phrases like this that tell you like that's why we have to read. We don't have a religion of hieroglyphics. There's a reason why Jesus chose to be the word of God. I mean, no one, listen, <laughs> you're not going to stand before the Lord and he'd be like, why didn't you read the Bible? Oh, Lord, I wasn't a reader, you know. And he's going to be like, yeah, I know, I made you that way. I know, you didn't like to read. That's not going to happen. When you stand before the Lord, you're going to wish you've memorized every verse. <laughs> like the Lord probably won't do this, but could you quote 10 verses from memory? Good. If you can't, and you've been a believer for a long time, make it your aim. Just 10 verses from memory. For something as dear as your faith, can you quote 10 verses from memory? And not just, yeah, it says that, I mean, this verse, this verse. Galatians 5, 16 and 17. Hebrews 5, 14. Hebrews. I know Christians who can't do that. You grew up in the church and you don't know 10 verses. But you know every song on pop radio, though. You know all them songs. Gucci gang, Gucci gang. You know all of that. The consideration, we bear fruit by prayer, by reading, by resisting, by fighting. And we make progress. Sometimes it's slower. Some seasons it's more obvious. Sometimes it's, small, it's slow. 
were turtles. But you know what? Turtles win races. I'd rather be a turtle and make it to the finish line than to be the hare, the rabbit that was too cool to finish. Stay alive in Jesus. Remain. Make progress. Not alone, but together. His word, his will, his way. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the both the severity of your word, for the humility in your word, for the blessings, the 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 the, the promises of prosperity, not financially necessarily like some charlatans take and apply wrongly, but just the the promises of a relationship with you and the joy that comes with that. But thank you also for the warnings that come from you and the concerns that come from those like you're this is not a faith of patting us on the back until we stand before you. Sometimes it's kicking us in the butt so that we so that we make it to before you. Lord, whichever is necessary here. then I pray that you would make that happen. I thank you for the men and women in this church who, especially those who've been here for some time, their faces here that we're here when this church planted. I thank you for their faithfulness, for their trusting you, for the progress that they've made. I thank you for those who are newer to the church, faces that I don't recognize that they don't know me. They haven't, they weren't here last time I spoke last summer. I thank you for that, Lord. I thank you for the freshness that you're you're bringing about. But Lord, I pray that in a culture that is laughing at those who profess to believe in you. I pray that you would do a work in those men and women who are here, whether they are members of this church or if they just visited today, if they profess to believe in you. I pray that you would do a significant work. In each of our lives. That we take very seriously what your word says. Not when we feel like it or when we're motivated. But we take it seriously because it's, it's serious. More than when it's just serious to us. I pray that you would encourage and correct swiftly, faithfully, so that each of us fight to remain in you. And I are not waiting for the moment when we really, really believe and really, really want to live for you. I pray that you would help us to remain in you, stay alive in you. And to make progress in our obedience. And I pray that you would help us fight discouragement. Particularly in areas where we're not making progress. You could have given us. By your spirit, the ability to, or or we could have just had no temptation and never failed at all. But even in the moments where we fail in our sinfulness, the fact that we obey you when we fall, when we confess, when we ask for forgiveness, when we restore 
ourselves. That's a sign of our confidence in you. That's a sign of staying alive in you. So, Father, I pray that you would be with each of us. For we find ourselves in this scene. Because we're branches. Please, Lord, please help us. To stay in you, remind us so that we do not wither and then are eventually burned. May the process of pruning for us, though it hurts. May we remember it's for our good. And more importantly, for your glory. Thank you for this time this morning. Use this word as you see fit. In your name we pray. Amen.